Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. It is he who pardons all our iniquities. He is the one who heals our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit, and he crowns us with loving kindness. Father, we're thankful that you're compassionate, that you're gracious, that you're slow to anger, that you abound in loving kindness. But your word warns that you'll not always strive with man, that your anger will not be kept forever. But thank you in your mercy that you've dealt with believers not according to our sins. You didn't reward us according to our iniquities. For through Christ, you promised that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your loving kindness to those who fear you that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. Our Father, we are humbled this morning because we deserve nothing but the punishment and the wrath our sin deserves But thank you that you have credited to everyone who believes the very righteousness that Christ himself has, that you've given us a new standing, and that when you saved us, you secured us for heaven. You told us that you placed the Holy Spirit in us as a down payment, as a guarantee that the work you began, you will finish. And so we ask in this process of sanctification that you would have freedom in our lives this morning. Your word is the renewing agent. You told us to long for it like newborn babies long for milk. And so help us to put aside any distractions. Help us to focus on the truth of your word that we might think our thoughts after your thoughts. Come and fill me and anoint me and use this message for all who will hear it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's infallible, inerrant, authoritative, eternal word and turn to the gospel of Luke chapter 16. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third book in the New Testament. If you're here for the first time, I've been doing a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. When we're done, we'll go back to a verse-by-verse exposition of another book of the Bible. Now, this is message number 27 in this series. And if you want to hear the other messages, you can download the Search the Scriptures app and listen to them at your leisure or go to communitybiblechurch.us. Now, we started studying this series on the end times, beginning with the rapture of the church, when God's people are physically, literally caught up into heaven. It will be followed by a seven-plus-year time known as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. It will culminate with Christ's literal, physical second coming to the earth. He'll rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And then as we begin to turn a corner today, we'll begin to look at eternity future, what it will mean for the believer and for the unbeliever. Now, our passage is probably familiar to many of you. It concerns a rich man and a poor man. A rich man who was lost and he dies, and instead of meeting God as a forgiven person, he meets God in an unforgiven state. And he's under God's wrath. Whereas the poor man who is named Lazarus, he was a believer. He'd been forgiven. And when he died, he goes to a place called Abraham's bosom, paradise. Now, this account drives home the truth that there are only two possible destinations when people leave this world. And that's important because not everyone believes that. 
The atheist says there is no heaven, there is no hell. The agnostic says, I don't know if there's a heaven or a hell. The Jehovah's Witness believes that the grave is hell itself. The Mormon believes there is a hell, but eventually all who are in hell get out of hell and are delivered into heaven. The Seventh-day Adventist, well, he believes that lost people go to hell, but they are annihilated. They are immediately burned up and extinguished like burning straw and will no longer exist. The Roman Catholic believes for the church member that he will log some time in purgatory, finishing suffering for his sin, a 12th century man-made doctrine found nowhere in Scripture, but eventually he'll be posited into hell. There's a myriad of beliefs all over the map, but what matters is what the Scripture says. Now, death is a very real subject, and very often when you speak to someone about death, they want to immediately change the subject. But I want to tell you, if you're not ready to die, you're really not ready to live. Now, many people think they are ready to die. They have a false view of what happens at death. But you need to make sure that your view syncs with Scripture. And sadly, today, many people don't care. They're more interested in the origin of the species than they are in the destiny of the species. But God is clear. We didn't come from the monkeys. God gives man more dignity. We were made in his imago Dei, in his image. Moses will write, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, a living nephesh, a living soul. We are different. You never see animals seeking after the living God. Man lives forever and ever. God alone has eternality, but when God created you, he made you to live forever and ever and ever. And after you die, because God breathed into you the breath of life, your life will continue endless, timeless, measureless, forever and ever and ever and ever. In fact, Solomon will write in Ecclesiastes 3, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity into our hearts. And that's why wherever you go in the world today, people have a sense that there's some kind of life after this body expires because God wrote eternity into your hearts. Now, on this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus pulls back the curtain of eternity and he gives us a glimpse into the next life. And of course, only Jesus and the writers that the Spirit of God inspired can speak with infallible, unerring authority, unerring authority. And so what we need to know is what does the Scripture say? Not what do I think, but what does God say? For he wrote only one book, the Holy Bible. He did not write the Quran. He did not write the Book of Mormon. He did not write the Upanishad, the Vedas. He did not author a single encyclical letter. The only thing that God inspired was these 66 books. Now, before we get into the weeds of this text of Scripture, let me just say that very often you will hear pastors and theologians debate, is this a parable or is this just historical narrative? Is this an actual event that took place or is it a parable? And the argument is, is that because the word parable is not technically used, then it mustn't be a parable. But I don't think that's the case. If you're going to be consistent, if you look at Luke 15, it opens up with a parable. And then he goes on and this and this and this through the prodigal, of, uh, the prodigal son and right into chapter 16. So a text doesn't have to say it's a parable to be a parable. And it certainly has all the characteristics 
of a parable. But whether it's a parable or not, certainly if it is a parable, it's the only parable where Jesus actually names a person. But whether it's a parable or not, Jesus, who is the truth, only uses truth to teach the truth. So it changes absolutely nothing. So don't get lost in that silly little argument. And so what we're looking at this morning is factual because Jesus describes it. And he, as a master teacher, addresses three great issues in this portion of Scripture. Three issues that we will all face, life, death, and eternity. And I suppose everything else is a subset of that. Luke chapter 16, I want to begin reading in 19. If you have a Bible, follow along. If you don't have one, come to meet the pastor, and you'll be gifted one. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Now there was a rich man... And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs, or you could say a little morsel, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I, I beg, I request you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now, as you can see, this passage is preceded by the parable of the unrighteous steward found in uh, the first 15 verses. And of course, it's the Pharisee's reaction to that parable that leads Jesus into this narrative section. And to really appreciate the warning that Jesus gives, you have to link the two passages together. And I hope before we're done, you'll see why. And so contextually, they fit together. Notice how the chapter opens, Luke 16 and verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward or a manager, you could say, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Now, our steward had an important position in the first century. He had a wide range of powers, but among other things, he uh, oversaw his bosses, his curios, his master's affairs. And so in this parable, Jesus taught how we should use material goods in order to make a spiritual difference. And it's important we understand it again because it's the lead-in 
for understanding the rich man who died and went to hell. Look, if you will, at verse 2. And he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be steward. Someone had reported to the boss that this man was squandering his master's goods. There was only one other place in the New Testament where this word squandering is used, and it's in the previous chapter in Luke 15 of the prodigal son who squandered his estate with loose living. So clearly his master does not believe that the accounting will exonerate this man, but he wants to confirm what he believes to be true, and so he speaks here that you can no longer be steward. Now, this guy knows he's guilty. He knows he's going to lose his job. He knows he's going to be out on the street, but he needs to close up shop, so to speak, before he is released. And so as the manager, he gathers together his various master's debtors, knowing that he's about to be officially fired. And by the way, one of these days, every person within the sound of my voice will give an accounting. Whether you are saved or whether you are lost, you will give an accounting for your service. Someday, the stewardship of your time, your talents, your possessions, your influence will be measured, and at the judgment of the just, you'll be rewarded accordingly. At the judgment of the lost, you will be rewarded accordingly with wrath, and we will see that. Someday, each of us will give an account of our stewardship. As good stewards, for instance, of the manifold grace of God, employ your gift in serving one another. You have been given a gift. The day God saved you, He gifted you. You say, I don't even know what it is. Of course you don't. You're so new in Christ. A baby, when they're born, you don't know what gifts they have, whether it's mechanical or intellectual or athletic until they grow. But as you grow in Christ, there'll be a special area in your life that God will use. The sad thing is I'll meet Christians who've been saved for three decades, and they don't even know that there are spiritual gifts, much less what theirs are, because they've never grown. And that's why the discovery class in the prior hour, and it's Alfred both hours, is so important. So here's this guy. He's going to give a full account in verse 3. And the steward said to himself, what am I to do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. That is, maybe he's too weak or feeble because he was lazy and he never really did a hard day's work in his life. Or maybe just the idea of manual labor was repulsive to him. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Now, I find it interesting that he says, I'm ashamed to beg, but when he gives the accounting and he goes through the squandering and the theft, he doesn't say, I'm ashamed that I've stolen. Verse 4, I know what I will do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. He knew that he would give an accounting of his management, and then the master would see how he had cooked the books and he would, at that point, be outright fired. So this man's a real schemer. He's a real crook. He's reasoning to himself, I'm going to give a full accounting. I'll no longer be in the employment of my boss. I'll no longer have a place to stay as the head steward. And so I need to take care of me. I need to make some friends so that when I lose this position, I'll have some place to go. Verse 5, notice how his dishonest scheme unfolds. Now he summoned, and he summoned each one of his master's debtors. 
Now, the dead here in verses 6 and 7 is obviously agriculture and nature, indicating that the master either had tenant farmers or he had wealthy businessmen that he was engaged with. More likely, based on what follows, he probably had both. So there's a long list of clients that the steward was responsible for. And God, of course, only highlights the first two. Look at verse 5. And he summoned each one, as you and I, each one of us will give an account, each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? So he's systematically taking the list and going through this uh, inventory of names, and he's going to offer a reduction plan. Now, the question is irrelevant. He asks the question, how much do you owe my master? He knew precisely what each of them owed his master. But he asks the question, I think emotionally, manipulatively, so that when he gives this big reduction, there's a sense of, wow, I owe this much, but um, now I only owe this much. How much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, the new New American Standard says jugs, 100 jugs. I prefer measures because it causes you to be a little more reflective. At least in the Western mind, a jug usually is a gallon or smaller. But in the Middle East mind, a jug was a large container. Technically, it's a liquid measure that in our English way of thinking, it would be 8.75 gallons. So he owns 100 batos, 100 measures. That's 875 gallons of olive oil. The NIV, which does a lot of paraphrasing, they just round it up and they render it 900 gallons. I'm told it would take 150 olive trees. That would be a rich man's grove to produce that much oil. And of course, in the first century, that much oil would be worth 1,000 denarii. And most of you know that a denarius represented a single day's pay for the average laborer. And so Jesus here is describing a sum of money that represents three years of work. And in these two examples he gives, these debtors are obviously not day laborers or tenant farmers. These are men with a large debt. These are wealthy businessmen. Now, certainly there may be people on the list that are much smaller in terms of their uh, intersection with this master, but these two are very wealthy. Take your bill, the text says, and sit down quickly and write 50. What a break. Imagine the relief. Imagine the gratitude, imagine the appreciation that he now owes 500 denarii less. Now remember, Jesus is going to refer to him in the text as an unrighteous steward. He's renegotiating these debts, and so 100 jugs, 100 measures of oil are now written down to 50. Notice further in verse 7 as he continues with these discounts. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, the NASB, here they write a hundred cores. And that's not bad because, again, it forces you to think. It's the Greek word koros. 
And in the new edition of the NAS, they transliterate the word. You transliterate a word, like baptizo becomes baptism. When you take the letters of a, a language and you just take the letters of the receptor language and translate it accordingly. And so a koros was the largest Hebrew dry measure that they had. It equaled about 10 bushels. And so we're talking here about 1,000 bushels of wheat. And of course, in the first century, they would say that took about 100 acres to produce. And so their steward tells him to take your bill and write 80. That's 20% off, uh, equivalent to 600 denarii off. That's two years of the average pay. And again, the discount here is very generous. And in each case, in their own hands, take your bill and write it. That's significant. Because in essence, he's tearing up the old contract. He's writing a new contract that he's going to stamp with his ring and approve. So when he goes to his master, he can't do anything because they have a new contract that the master now has to honor. And so the assumption here is that the steward goes through this list, each one of his master's debtor. And again, he's hoping to get return favors later on. I've got to take care of my future. I've got to think about me. I don't like doing manual labor. I'm ashamed to beg. I need to make some new friends. And so he uses his authority to rip off his master. And again, this is significant in light of the application Jesus is going to make for us. Look now at verse 8 in your Bible. And his master praised, some of your texts say complimented or commended. His master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. I need to say that verse 8 has created a lot of consternation and confusion in the hearts of a lot of people. Please understand, Jesus, the master here, who puts these words in the mouth of the master, is not praising or admiring him for his dishonesty. He's praising him because he acted shrewdly, that the old papers were destroyed and new accounts were made, and that he wouldn't even have any legal recourse. He's not commending him for unethical behavior any more than when Jesus describes himself as a thief in the night, that he is in nature a thief. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus never praises unethical behavior. So on the one hand, he's unrighteous for squandering his Lord's good. On the other hand, he's very shrewd and that he is making some new relational friends by the way he treats them. Now, notice what Jesus says by conclusion. For the sons of this age, you could write over there a believer. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Excuse me, the sons of this age, an unbeliever, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are believers, the sons of light. The sons of this age, unbelievers versus the sons of light. There is the contrast. And it's important contrast, and we need to follow this portion of Scripture because it becomes key to understanding the rich man who dies and goes to hell. So stay with me. And so here's this guy who's shrewd, and Jesus is saying, listen, the people of this world are more shrewd in the way they deal with each other than are God's people. So he pointedly applies it to us. Look at verse 9, if you will. And I say to you, now he's talking to the disciples, I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. 
Or you could render it the mammon of unrighteousness or by unrighteous wealth. wealth, And ultimately, all wealth is unrighteous. In the end, every dollar is dirty. The dollar that came from your hand may have come from an abortion clinic. It may have come from someone who just got drugs and now they're buying some product you have. So in the end, it's all tainted. But Jesus is saying, listen, use worldly riches, use the wealth of unrighteousness, literally, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends using worldly riches, then when it fails, and someday it will fail, it will fail for you either when you die, for you cannot take it with you, or it will fail for all of us if Jesus comes back, because then your money will be worthless and you won't need it. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to exercise the same shrewdness in dealing with your money, the money that God's entrusted to you, and the way that this lost man did in making worldly friends. Now hold that thought. It's going to fail. The King James, interestingly, says not when it fails, but when he fails. And they do that because they're trying to uh, capture the aspect of death. But every Greek text all says when it fails. In either case, the point is, is when you die, your money isn't going to do you any good. I heard about a man who was very wealthy. And he had told his wife, you know, I've always heard it said you can't take it with you, but I think I need to try. She said, what do you mean? This is what I want you to do. He was sick. He was in bed. He only had days to live. He said, go there into the closet. There's a big box. It's filled with silver and gold and dollars. He said, I want you to put it in the room right above my head there in the attic. He said, I want you to attach a rope to it. And when I die on the way up, I'm going to grab it and take it with me. (laughs) Well, she thought that was kind of silly, but she said, well, okay, if that's what you want me to do. So she went up in the attic, the room right above his head, and put all the wealth up there with a rope on it, with a hook on it, so he could just grab it. And then he died. The undertaker came and took his body away, and she said, you know, maybe it worked. So she went up in the attic, and there it was, still sitting there. She said, I knew I should have put it in the basement. All of your money, all of it, when it fails, because it will fail someday, the moment you die, it won't do you any good, but you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, and that's the lesson of this. When it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Just as the unrighteous steward, by the use of his master's money, made temporal friends, Jesus is saying, I want you to take God's money, because it's not yours, it's all God's, and I want you to use it in a way that you can make eternal friends. You're not going to live here forever, but God wants you to know that you can make friends up there by the way you use your money down here. Revelation 14, we studied it not long ago, and we looked at that phrase in the 13th verse, that your works follow you. That as Christians, we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Don't think for one skinny minute you can earn or merit heaven. If you think that, you'll die and go to hell. It says you're still lost. But once you are saved, if you're available to the Spirit of God in you to work and minister through you, in eternity, God rewards you, and so your works follow you. 
And so Jesus is saying, when it fails, they, that is those who have gone on before us, which by the way, gives us a little glimpse into heaven. I have often been asked in the Bible line or at funerals, will my loved one recognize me? And the answer right here is yes. They will receive you. They, oh, there's Joe. I'm here because Joe gave to that particular outreach and I heard the gospel and I'm born again in heaven because of the way he used his money. So Jesus is not saying, of course, that you can spend your way into heaven, but he is saying that as the steward of the funds that God has entrusted to you, you're to use it wisely. Now, with that said, he goes on and he applies it and he makes three specific applications. Stay with me. This is important to understanding our text and the two are often divorced. And he makes three applications, first concerning the matters of money. Notice, if you will, he not only tells us in verse 9 that we can send our money on ahead in verse 10, he reminds us that the measure of how much God entrusts to us today is measured by what we do with the money we have. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Now you'll notice he moves from the future to the present because he wants us to understand the relationship between our current day management and our future entrustment and even things right now. So it's important to ask, what does he mean by a very little thing? And what does he mean by much? Well, contextually, obviously, the very little thing is your financial matters. And the much concerns your spiritual matters. And so the Lord is saying that the way you manage your financial matters is indexed to what God will entrust you concerning your spiritual matters, things that really, truly matter. And when a son of light, when a Christian, when it's a believer, I think the uh, King James says children of light, equally legitimate. If we're careless, if we are unprincipled, if we are not careful with what God has said, then he really can't entrust to us greater spiritual opportunity and responsibility. That's crystal clear from verses 11 and 12. Notice, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Now, the true riches that Jesus mentioned are not what you have in the bank. It's not your retirement account. It's not your house or your land. It's everything that you have that money cannot buy, that rust cannot rot, that thieves cannot steal. It's treasure in heaven. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, or of another man's, the King James says, or someone else's property, the Net Bible says, or another translation, the CJB says, what belongs to someone else. If you've not been faithful in the use of another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, you will notice if you have some of these other translations, these additional words are in italics because they're not contained in the Greek text. And so with great precision, the New American Standard and the ESV just says, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's. And I think that's important because contextually here, there's a double entendre. He is dealing with the stewardship of what God has put in your pocket. When we think about stewardship of our gifts or our time or our talents or the stewardship of the church that the elders are given, Paul says. 
We're saying this is not my church, this is Christ's church. This is not my money, it's God's money. It's not a 90-10% relationship. Well, 10% is God's and the other 90 is mine and I can do whatever I want with it. It's all God's and we are to use it carefully. And if God owns it all and if we've been faithful with the money that he's entrusted to us, then he'll entrust greater things to us. But if we haven't been faithful, who will give you that which is your own. You see, when we use what God has given us, He gives us true riches. And some of us have very little impact for the kingdom. We have very little authority with lost people. We have minimal influence, even sometimes with our own children, because of the way we steward the things that God has entrusted to us. And so the monetary treasures down here that God has given to us, I don't care if they're small or big. You think, well, you know, you have to have a lot to make a difference. Look, the average American is richer than 80% of the people on the planet. We don't even know how much God has blessed us. But like Israel who went into the land, and God says when you get in there and you enjoy cisterns you didn't dig and houses you didn't build and vineyards you didn't plant, don't forget me. And people came to this nation and they were on their knees there on the shores of Cape Cod begging God to bless the nation. And God did. Yes, we have flaws because we are sinners. But this nation was blessed like few nations in the world and now that we are rich and prosperous, 80% of America is not in church today, and they don't care to be. They're not here to worship the living God who has given them the very breath that they have. And so the monetary treasures that God has given us down here, be they small or large, will affect what God will entrust to you in terms of responsibility and ultimately your eternal reward. And as we've seen in this series, even authority that he entrusts to you during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Now, this is important contextually to the account that Jesus is going to give of the rich man who dies and goes to Haiti. Because throughout his teaching, he makes it clear that there are people who are listening in and they're called Pharisees. And he indicts them with being in love with money. Now, stay with me. There's these matters of money. There's these matters of management. But there's this matter of masters. He gets more pointed as he moves to this narrative section on hell. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. It comes down to a question of masters, as we just saw, the unrighteous steward who modeled the opposite of what we are to do. It comes down to those who are listening, who are lovers of money. It comes down to the rich man who dies and he goes to hell, not because he's rich. Some of God's choicest servants in the scripture are incredibly wealthy. He goes to hell because he's an unbeliever. It's very simple. Either God masters the money he's entrusted to you, or it masters you. There's really no neutrality. Remember the rich young ruler that Christ confronted? He said, well, I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I do this, and I do this. And he didn't really see himself in need of a savior. And so Jesus comes to the 10th commandment, and he shows that he's a covetous person 
that he loves money more than God, and that's what's keeping him out of the kingdom of God. God loved the rich young ruler. He wanted the rich young ruler to be saved, but the man couldn't be saved until he saw himself the way God sees him as unrighteous. God loved the Pharisees. He wanted them to be saved. Most notably, one of the most famous key leader Pharisees of the 6,000 plus in the first century, most of you know him, Nicodemus. You'll meet him in heaven someday. Even in Acts 15, you see Pharisees coming to faith. And so Jesus is convicting of them of their sin because he wants them to come to a savior. Verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They were listening. They were scoffing. They were deriding. The word scoff means to turn up one's nose. It literally means uh, to smell, to stink. They had stinking, rotten theology. And they were scoffing at the Lord Jesus. They were mocking him. In verse 15, he said, You're those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. It's one thing to justify yourself in the sight of men through smooth words or a charismatic personality or hypocrisy, but God knows every heart. We can fool man, but we cannot fool God. And of course, the Pharisees were known for fooling man. Jesus unfolded their hypocrisy in the Sermon on the Mount and the way they gave, the way they prayed, the way they fasted, only to be seen by man. And then in Matthew 23, he gives that series of woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You have all these standards that you lay on men, but you don't follow yourself. There were scoffers. By the way, there's another scoffer in the Scripture who's saved. You know him most famously as the thief on the cross. And then Jesus wants them to know what his Father thinks of their value system. Notice, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. It's detestable on God's sight. As a general rule, if you see something that the world is just enamored with, it's detestable to God. Is God against money? No. When people are enamored with it, is God against you watching a football game? No. But most people are enamored with it. It's their God. And on and on we could go. Verse 16, Jesus brings it down to where these men live. They thought they were so super spiritual. Jesus said, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Jesus said the law and the prophets were were preached, proclaimed through the last prophet of the Old Testament. Who is the last prophet of the Old Testament? John the Baptist, of course. He dies prior to Pentecost. The law and the prophets, and this is an interesting statement, were proclaimed until John, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. The Pharisees wanted to come into the kingdom. They just didn't want to come in God's way. They were forcing their way into it. Listen, it's the king who determines the means of entrance. But like many people today, they were high-minded, they were unbroken, they were unbent. They thought they were righteous. Look, there are people who will come to church today who think that they've done God a favor because they're here. 
So they tried to force their way into the kingdom. We're coming our way. And their way, of course, was not God's way. Their righteousness, like yours and mine, is is a filthy rag. And unless we are gifted by grace with the righteousness that God himself has, that can only come through the death, burial, and the resurrection, we'll never see the inside of heaven. And so here are these men who honored God with their lips, but they were unwilling to come the Lord's way. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? They're the most holy men. How can we ever surpass them? And Jesus pulls back the veneer and shows what a fake, phony righteousness they have. And so they tried to change God's law to satisfy themselves and their guilty consciences. And so Jesus makes this statement in verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. You can try to manipulate the law, and they did it not only with their view of money, but as the illustration that follows, they did it with the way they viewed marriage and divorce. This verse, look at it, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You see, these self-righteous Pharisees claim to be righteous. Remember there in Luke 18, Jesus tells, it's a parable of a a Pharisee goes into the temple and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this scumbag tax collector over here. They claimed a righteousness that was not true. And so they hid behind adultery. They made it legal. Let's dump this woman and get a new model. Jesus said, you're divorcing your wife, you're marrying another. And while you may think you are righteous in the sight of men, you are unrighteous in the sight of God. And again, Christ loves these people. These people can be forgiven. And so now he goes for the jugular with what follows. And so he contrast two men, a lost man, Lazarus, and a rich man, Mr. Dives, we'll call him. Notice three contrasts. First, the contrast in their lives, the contrast in their lives. Roman number one, if you're taking notes, you said, I wondered when he was going to get to the outline. (laughs) We're almost there. We're We're actually three quarters of the way through the sermon. Verse 19, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen and joined himself in splendor every day. I should tell you sooner or later because you will hear it. Sometimes this rich man is called Mr. Dives and rightly so because the word rich is from the Latin text dives. And so remember, for a thousand years, all the clergy across the world studied one translation of the Bible, and it was Latin. And that's why we have all these Latin sayings behind me on the stained glass and on front of the pulpit, because much of what the church teaches is summarized in some of the great Latin terms from the Latin language. With that said, here's this Mr. Rich Man, some call him Mr. Dives, but he didn't live in any dive, I promise you. The Bible says he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Now you see how wealthy he is by the way he dresses first. He has an outer garment and an inner garment. The outer garment is 
purple, the inner garment is described here as fine linen. Purple was a very expensive dye to make in the first century. And it was really a status symbol to wear anything purple. Usually only the rich of the rich wore such a garment. It came from either the matter root, which took a tremendous amount of root to create something purple, or it came from this uh, shell that I have pictured here. This is the murex cell shell. It's just a small little shell. And from that shell, they would get literally about a half a drop of purple. And it took several thousand shells to get the purple dye needed in order to make a purple garment. That's why when King Horacerus wants to, uh, uh, many of you maybe read during the Feast of Purim just recently, the book of Esther, and he puts a purple robe on Mordecai. Remember that? Uh, it was in a very, very expensive robe that he allowed him to wear. Or Herod Antipas mocked the Lord Jesus, and he threw a purple robe on his back. And so, furthermore, the text says he was rich, he enjoyed himself in splendor every day, and it's seen also by his inner garment that's described here as fine linen. Now, in English, this word um, that's used here, busos, can be used of, uh, literally, it comes in English as busos, is to describe a muscle that's attached to a rock with these fine threads. But it still has the same original idea. But in, in Greek and in Latin, it was used to describe what we might call the finest of Egyptian linen. In fact, in the first century, they called the inner garment, if it was fine linen, woven air. Only rich men wore it. He was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, notice further, enjoying himself in splendor every day. Now, the word splendor can be used in different contexts here, of course, in terms of eating. In fact, some translations, like the ESV renders it, he feasted sumptuously. Words find their meaning in context. When I use the word cool, do I mean the, it's cool in here this morning, or he's rather cool towards me, or hey, that's cool, or the word trunk, what's in front of an, an elephant, what's behind a car, what's at the base of a tree. Context is everything. And so here, the splendor, the word that's used, is used of someone who feasted sumptuously. And what a contrast between him and the poor man. Now, it didn't mean that people in the first century didn't feast sumptuously, but the average person only did it once or twice a year. Maybe like we would on... Thanksgiving or Christmas. But this guy did it every single day. And the poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So Lazarus, the Bible says, is laid at his gate. And this gate says a lot about this rich man. He had a gated house. To have a gated house in the first century was to be an extremely wealthy person. There's only two gated houses in all the New Testament. One, of course, is in Acts 10, when uh, Peter goes to the home of a very wealthy man, Simon the Tanner. We're up on his roof. He has a vision to show that God is going to bond together Jews and Gentiles into a single body called the body of Christ. The other place, of course, is in Acts chapter 12, where the church met for a prayer meeting in the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, who gave us the gospel of Mark. And if you remember, uh, Peter 
is in prison and James the apostle had his head cut off. So they're in this earnest prayer meeting in a gated house. It's no typical Jerusalem crackerback, cracker box. It's a very wealthy home. That's what this guy is in. So here's Lazarus, and the text says he's laid at the gate. I couldn't help but read this and come to my mind what I read in Acts 3. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple." And so uh, this man had some kind of congenital defect, we're not told. Maybe he had severe club feet, we're not told precisely. But the text does say he was lame from his mother's womb. He never knew a healthy day. His legs were limp and spongy like a dish rag. And so what did you do with such a man? You laid him at the gate. Why? Because he could only do one thing. Beg. Why could he only beg? Because of a theologically driven precept that was false. And I've discussed this with you before when I taught John 9. Do you remember in John 9 when the disciples saw this man who is congenitally blind, blind from birth? And they asked him this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? It was a well-established, popular teaching of the day that if you were born with some kind of quote-unquote malfunction... But God doesn't make mistakes. He uses even the fall for his own glory and all the challenges that come with it. But nonetheless, the popular teaching was if you were born that way, it was either because of your parents' sin or your sin, your sin in the womb. And so they're asking, Lord, what's the case with him? Did his dad and mom sin? Or did he sin in the womb? Now, that would seem to be a terrible punishment, that you were born blind because of some sin your parents committed or even that you committed in the womb. And they took a verse from Exodus 20 out of context where it speaks of the iniquity of the parents going to the second and third generations. I have a whole sermon on it if you want to study it. But what it meant was even if you could come up with some kind of employment by which you could make money, you were a marked man. You weren't allowed for such employment, because you are viewed as soiled and used goods. So what did you do? You begged. Lazarus was laid at his gate, and that shouted volumes to any first century reader. His plight is that of a beggar. Further, we're told that his body was covered with sores, probably due to malnutrition. Verse 21, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. He just wanted a few scraps, a few bits of food, a few crumbs. They probably just threw it out like throwing food out for the stray cats in the neighborhood. Maybe one of the servants had compassion because this man certainly didn't. Hey, give these leftovers, give them to Lazarus. Add to that, dogs were coming and licking his sores only to add to his misery. So here are these two men about 30 yards apart, but they are worlds apart in their lifestyle. That's the contrast in their lives. Secondly, let's think further about the contrast in their deaths, the contrast in their deaths. Look, if you will, now at verse 22. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. 
By the way, the word Lazarus is Eleazar in Hebrew, and it literally means God helps. And it may be that the reason, if this is a parable, that Jesus names a person is he wants to underscore that God helps, that God sees, that God sees the plight of every person on the planet, that God cares, and he wants to underscore that truth. In either case, Lazarus dies, and some angels come, and they carry him away to Abraham's bosom. People may not have cared for him in this world, but God cared for him. God loved him, and he sends some of his angels. I've done literally hundreds of funerals. I know over 500 and over the decades, I've asked, people have asked me, well, my, my mother, she died alone. I wish I could have been there. Or, or my, my daughter, she died alone. My little girl, she died alone. No one dies alone. Not among the people of God. God sends his welcoming angels, and they carry us to that place of rest. rest. And in this case, it's called Abraham's bosom. It's also known as paradise. It's also known as Sheol. It's also known as Hades. Now, remember, every Jew, virtually every Jew in the first century didn't read the Hebrew Scriptures. They lost their ability after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. So what did they read? They read the Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament, whether it's righteous Hades or unrighteous Hades, it's the same word. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. In Greek, it's Hades. We think of the word Hades, and we think of it negatively. Today, the only way to think of it is negatively, because only unrighteous Hades continues. But in Jesus' day, there were two compartments to Hades. There was righteous Sheol or righteous Hades, and there was unrighteous Sheol or unrighteous Hades. There was Abraham's bosom, which is a beautiful picture of the place a believer would go. Why? Because of who Abraham is. He's the father of us all, the apostle Paul says, and he's three times in scripture on both sides of the Bible called a friend of God. He was a true believer, and so he obviously went to the place of blessing, and that's where Lazarus goes. By contrast, notice, the rich man also died and was buried. So the Lord mentions the rich man's burial, but he doesn't mention Lazarus's burial. Why? Because if the first century historians are correct, for a beggar or crucified man or vagrants, they were just thrown into a common grave. But this guy was rich, and I'm sure it was quite an affair. I'm sure they did it up big. And I'm sure they were probably already going after what he left. Look, you can have a big funeral with all the hoopla and a big reception. But if you don't know Jesus, it's a big zero. He's living it up. Then he dies. He's buried. And let me say parenthetically, again, if you know your Bible... He doesn't go to hell because he's rich. Abraham, the father of the faithful, is one of the richest men in all of Scripture. He goes to hell because he's an unbeliever. He's not welcomed by the angels of God into the presence of God. He's brought into a place of judgment. People talk about the grim reaper. They talk about the death angel. That's all fable. That's found nowhere in Holy Scripture. 
For that matter, sometimes people say, well, when a lost man dies, Satan gets his soul. Satan doesn't get his soul. Satan's not even in Hades. And as we've seen in this series, when Satan ultimately is thrown into the lake of fire, the final resting place where Hades and all in it end up, he's not torturing people with a pitchfork. He himself is tormented day and night like all the lost people that are there. Now, there's the contrast in their lives. There's the contrast in their deaths, finally, the contrast in their eternities. I want you to think about the contrast in their eternities. Look now, if you will, at verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So he's not far from Lazarus, and yet he's a world apart. He's in a place of torment and pain, whereas Lazarus is in a place of comfort and care, Abraham's bosom. And we'll talk a little bit further about that in the weeks ahead. Today, post-ascension, the moment a person dies, he doesn't go to righteous Sheol. He goes home to be with the Lord. He's in the Father's house. But remember, this is before the cross. This is before in time and space Jesus died and bled and was raised and made an eternal payment. So they went to Old Testament paradise. And an unbeliever went to Old Testament Hades. And with that said, they are given some kind of a temporal body. Look, if your loved one has died and gone home to the Father's house, he doesn't have a resurrection body yet. He's awaiting that. No one has been resurrected except Christ and a small handful of Old Testament saints on Resurrection Sunday. Still all in the future. But there's some kind of resurrection body that is given, and they're awaiting that. They're looking forward to that. We'll come to that in a moment. But let me just say... In the end, the unbeliever will have a body suited for hell, but even in Hades, the unbeliever has some kind of temporal body where he can feel pain and torment. And the believer who went to Sheol, he was given some kind of a body. Do you remember the prophet Samuel? He comes up out of Sheol and he visits King Saul. He's in some kind of a body. But remember, the Old Testament saints aren't raised until the end of the tribulation. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. Jesus is very clear here. That there's a life to live, there's a death to die, there's an eternity to face. And my Jehovah's Witness and Seventh-day Adventist friends who say we're annihilated and we just cease to exist have warped and twisted the Scriptures to their own destruction. My wife and I went to Massachusetts on a trip to visit my mom before she died. And in our near 43 years of marriage, for whatever reason, we like to go into graveyards. And we saw this old graveyard, and we went in, and here's a picture of a grave we saw. There were five graves with this slogan on it. This is the grave of Sarah Cutter. I don't know if you can make it out. She was 39 years old. She died in 1777. And written on her tombstone were these words, Pause, stranger, as you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare to die and follow me. And on one of those five graves, it was very faint, hard to read. I didn't put it up here because you couldn't even begin to read it. But it said this, to follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) I don't know if a friend put that on there or who did it. 
But listen, we're going to die. And there's a contrast here. We're told in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Now, over the years, I've been called ignorant, uneducated, uncaring, because I describe hell the way Jesus describes hell as a place of actual torment. And people say, oh, that's just folklore. That's just ignorance. And the average evangelical pulpit no longer even preaches on hell. And if this is your first Sunday, you say, oh, this brogy is a hellfire damnation preacher. <laughs> I don't preach on hell every week. But when it's in the text, I do. And I'm to warn people. Saved, saved, saved. Saved from what? A student at the University of North Carolina asked me. I've heard that my whole life. What do I need to be saved from? And it wasn't one of the most profound, pointed questions a pagan ever asked me. You need to be saved from the coming eternal wrath of God Almighty. Listen, the cruelest thing for me to do is to know what the Scripture says and not to warn people of it. So the lost man is in torment. Lazarus, the text says, is being comforted. And from all we know of that place, it's horrible. Look at verse 24. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's Jewish. He's identifying as every Jew wanted to do with Father Abraham. But just because a Jew identified with Father Abraham didn't make it true. John chapter 8. Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, you'd do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are of your father, the devil. If you really knew the Lord like Abraham knew the Lord, you wouldn't live the kind of life you did. Your, your lifestyle denies that you have the faith of Abraham. And there'll be many confessing Christians at the end of time who are convinced they're going into heaven but they are actually on the broad road. They've entered through the wide gate that is headed to destruction. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So here he is. He's in hell. He's in Hades. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. Why? For I am in agony in this pain. Now listen, he's dead and buried, but the dead are not really dead. His body may have been decaying in a grave somewhere, but he's in some kind of a temporal body, and he can see, he can hear, he can speak, he can feel, he can taste, and he can remember he's very conscious, and he still thinks of himself with a feeling of superiority. Go get Lazarus and tell him to come here and to give me a little cold water for my tongue. And in the narrative, Abraham can't identify with him, notice, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you're in agony. During his earthly life, the rich man enjoyed many good things, and the process, he was so captivated by those good things, he neglected preparation for his next life. And in the previous parable, just like the unjust steward, he was forward in his thinking for the temporal side of life, but not for the eternal things of life. And then he adds, and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may be able to cross over from there to us. 
So the rich man could see and speak with Abraham, but there's a great chasm fixed, and it's fixed for all time. Again, his body's buried, but he's in some kind of a temporal body, and he's very, very much conscious. C.S. Lewis used to say that hell is locked on the inside. It's somewhat of a half-truth. It's true in the sense that if you go to hell, it's your fault. But God ultimately sends people to hell. It's an expression of his just and divine retribution. But people are there because they rejected the provision of the cross that was made for them. Not only is he conscious in hell, he's concerned in hell. Look at verse 27. And he said, then I beg you. The word beg here is the same word that was used of Lazarus, but now it's not Lazarus who's begging. It's the rich man who's begging. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Again, he he views Lazarus like a servant, and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers. Why? Because he knows his five brothers are like he is, unrepentant. He has this consciousness of what is beginning to happen and what is soaking in. And he, he remembers. And yes, people will remember when they are in hell. Some people will remember this sermon and this preacher pleading with them, earnestly begging them to be reconciled to God through Christ. He remembers the lost state of his five brothers I will say that some people who are in Hades this morning have more concern for the lost than believers. Notice verse 29, Abraham's response. Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. We'd say today they have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. Abraham pointed out that his five brothers had all of the necessary information they needed to repent. Just like men may deny there's a God, they know there's a God. Whenever you meet an atheist or an agnostic, you can confront him like Paul would in Romans 1 and remind them of truth. But know that he knows God, that God exists. He's a liar when he tells you, I didn't believe there was a God. I wasn't sure there was a God. That is a downright lie, and you should never put that in your testimony. Every man knows there's a God. Just like every man knows the Bible is the word of God. I'm not opposed to giving a polemic, especially for God's people, to ward off the fiery darts of the evil one. Why, we can prove this is the only book God wrote. But when I read it, when I preach it, when I share it, the unbeliever knows it's the word of God. Why? Because it's alive, it's living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh, but he said, no, Father Abraham, verse 30. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He thought some spectacular appearance from the dead would persuade them. Some monumentous sign would bring them to faith. Now, God may use a sign or a miracle to authenticate his word and the writers of the New Testament, but faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the scripture that is the seed of God that brings about conversion by the spirit. Even if someone comes from the dead, and the fact is Jesus did rise from the dead, 
And the fact is, later on in the ministry of Christ, just a few weeks before he's crucified, one of his best friends, his name is also Lazarus, Eleazar. And he is raised from the dead. And what do the Pharisees want to do? Kill him! Kill the evidence! The rich man knew what his brothers must do that he did not do. He did not repent, and he was hoping maybe, maybe, just maybe. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let me make three straightforward applications as we close. Number one, we must be conscious of God's coming eternal wrath. The rich man in Hades was conscious. He could see, he could hear, he could feel, he had memory, he had taste. Hell is a real place. It is a just expression of God's holy hatred for sin. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army that was once a great evangelistic movement. William Booth said, if I had my way, I would not give any of my workers a three-year training course in a seminary, but I would put each of them in hell for 24 hours That would be the best training for earnest preaching that any Christian could have. And I would say amen. But I don't have to go to hell. I can read the texts of Scripture. Hell is an awful place. It's described as a place of torment. On one occasion, Jesus gave this warning. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire. He was not obviously saying to literally cut off your right hand or literally pluck out your right eye or literally cut off your right foot because you'd still have the left foot, the left hand, the left eye in which to execute the sin. But Jesus is using hyperbole to say it would be far better to be a crippled saint than to be a healthy sinner. Hell is a place of torment. It's a place of separation. And we need to be conscious of it to fully appreciate what Jesus accomplished on the cross and for us to passionately share this good news. Secondly, that leads us to the second point. We must be concerned about the lost people we meet. We must be concerned. Do you live with the consciousness of the coming wrath of God so much so that you're concerned or are you like the me, myself, and I rich man who could care less? I believe there are people sitting here who have fathers and mothers and brothers and children and friends and neighbors and co-workers. They've never been in their prayer closet on their face before God asking for the person's conversion, much less try to share with them. Look, I can't preach someone into heaven if it's their funeral. I can't change their destiny. But it's a pleasure when you know the person was born again. They lived passionately for Jesus. You can give a sense of comfort. Look, we've got the best news the world can ever hear. That's why Paul asked the Colossians in Colossians 4, pray for me that God would give me more open doors of opportunity to preach the word. And when the opportunity comes, I can make it clear. I don't want to beg people to sign up for the Easter Blitz. I certainly don't want to guilt people into doing it. But if you believe that there's a real heaven and a real hell, you'll have some concern 
for the destiny of people. Third and finally, we must be convinced of our own personal salvation. Convinced. Not a hope so, I think so, but a no so kind of salvation. A young Marine arriving home for leave, getting ready to go out for a night on the town of the bars, was given a gospel tract by his mother. He took it and he flung it on the floor. He said, I am sick and tired of you trying to badger me about your religion. Today, I was on the airplane and someone gave me a gospel tract. Everywhere I go, it seems like someone wants to talk to me about Jesus. Where can I go where I don't get these tracts? His mother said, Thomas, in hell, no one will give you a gospel tract. Hell is an awful place. It's a place of separation. It's a place of separation from everything that is good and holy and pleasing. And typically, lost people never go to hell alone. They bring someone there with them. Look, people who are lost aren't concerned about their kids. They're not concerned about their grandkids. They're not concerned about their co-workers. In fact, Romans 1 says sometimes they can go so far into sin that they become evangelists for sin. If you go to hell, you won't typically go alone. If you go to hell and you die lost and you've heard this sermon, you will remember what you heard today from Beaufort, South Carolina, from the Word of God. You don't have to go to hell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Call upon him. He will receive you today. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. There's no better time to be saved, Scripture teaches, than today. Today is the day of salvation. And if you'd like to receive him, you can. But you have to come bankrupt. You can't come bringing a righteousness of your own. You must come in need of the righteousness that God can gift you, that he'll bless you with if you come through the cross. God will either save you through his son or he won't save you at all. He'll either save you totally by what Jesus did or he cannot save you. He will not save you. Call upon him. Ask him. Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father, we have saturated our minds this morning in a whole chapter of Scripture. And thank you for its power to renew us, to change the way we think. We know that when we meet you in heaven, if we're saved, the only regrets we might have that we did not more passionately and consistently and faithfully share the good news with people who need it. We know we can't win everybody, but we can win somebody. I pray for the blitz as it will go out from here, from Graniteville, from Grace, that that would be an invitation for some to come on Easter and for others the first in a series of invitations that you might use to bring someone into the kingdom. Give us the burden that Jesus has. Help us to believe what he said. Even if we stand alone, I'd rather, Father, stand alone in the truth than in a crowded place where people have embraced falsehood. 
Lord Jesus, you said more about hell than you said about heaven. You came to save us from its grasp. Thank you for what you did. Thank you that your payment was not partial, but total, so that to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with you. We bless you in your holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Now, if you're here this morning and you've received Christ, one of the first steps is you make it public. And so I'm going to ask you in a moment to leave your seat and come to this front row. We're not going to ask you to give a speech, but your coming will be saying, I'm not ashamed to say that Jesus is my Lord. And Jesus taught that if a man won't confess him before people publicly, he'll never confess them. Coming down this aisle is not some work that merits salvation. But my friend, if you're born again on the inside, you'll be ashamed of him on the outside. And it should show itself in New Testament baptism as we just witnessed. Baptism, a symbol of the death, burial, and the resurrection. You say, preacher, I've been saved and baptized. You need a church. Every believer does. And if we can be that church home for you this morning, I want to invite you to leave your seat. Meet me here in the front. Matt, leave. Lead us if you would. If you have a decision, leave your seat right now and come forward.